I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So thanks as always for tuning in. This week, we're doing a more compressed episode focused on the recent election in Australia and its implications for the climate. I'm dubbing it The Breakdown Down Under. How about that for a title? Oh, I see what you did there. I see the ratings just skyrocketing through the roof. How about what? How about the over and under, down under? How about that? Oh, um, <laughs> we come from a land down under. Do you, do you ever get tired, Thomas, of people singing that that song? You better run. You oh. better take. <laughs> I don't. What was that minute work? Easily. Minute work. Yes, it is. Right? Well done. Yeah. Vegemite sandwich. You know, the only, I think the first time and only time I've ever eaten Vegemite was at your house. Everybody's like, ah, oh, it's not, it's weird. It's not very good. And I'm like, I, I can, it's probably not bad. I can eat anything. And I couldn't understand what it even is. It tastes, it's like battery <laughs> acid or something. Do you eat that stuff? He suckered me into trying it too. He's like, oh, hey, I'll put it on this toast. It'll be delicious. Oh. I actually just had two slices of it before the podcast. <laughs> yeah. We probably got to be else. careful. We're going to offend our, our Australian listeners. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have the palate for it. I'll be honest. It's just must be an acquired taste. It, it comes with the citizenship. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in, in all seriousness, though, naturally with, with today's topic... Being about Australia, we're going to let you, Thomas, a native of Australia, do the heavy lifting. And if I'm not mistaken, the election was, I guess, about, it'll be about a Saturday ago on the 21st. And I read that this go around, the number one issue on voters' minds was was actually climate change. And so curious for those who haven't read sort of the news on the election, if you can kind of run us through the very high level, what happened. Yeah. So, um, Basically, there was a massive swing against the incumbent government, which was a coalition made up of the Liberal Party, which are not liberal at all in their thinking or means, and the National Party, which supposedly represent the views of rural voters. However, um, that's that's shifted a lot in recent years as the National Party started to represent more so the coal mining sector and the mining industry in general, rather than um, its previous base of the agricultural voters, although I've got to say that the Nationals and the Liberals have done a fantastic job in the last decade or so gaslighting people about climate change and really you know, kicking the can down the road as far as they can. And I, I, I really think that it's been this spate of natural disasters over the last six or seven years or so in Australia between the droughts, the bushfires and these recent floods that finally people have woken up and they just won't be lied to anymore. They realize that it is something that, that is not you know, the next generation's problem to worry about. It's something that's affecting us now, and it's really starting to impact the country. And so rather than there being a massive swing towards the Labor Party, there were quite a number of independents, especially in the more urbanized areas that were standing, and um, they picked up the voter base because they still have relatively conservative views on a lot of matters, but on climate change, they finally had enough. They wanted action. And yeah, they picked up a 
a big slice of the pie and they will most likely on a lot of climate-based issues be voting along the lines of the Labor uh, Labor Party and the Greens. So in essence, you've had this shift. The Labor Party, which I'm hearing is more focused on addressing climate change, has come into power, but they don't have a a mandate necessarily. It sounds like they're going to be dependent upon these independents and the Green Party to be able to get things done, which which could be good from a climate perspective. Yeah. So at this stage, there's still one seat short uh, from an outright majority in the House of Representatives. And so they'll have to negotiate with what we call the crossbench here to pass legislation. But we have a a two-house system like you have in the US. So in our Senate, the Labor Party by themselves only have you know, about a third of the Senate. So they'll have to partner with the Greens to get anything passed. And that's the beauty of this. The, the Greens have, I think, 12 seats now in the Senate. So quite a number of the 76 seat total. And that means that they'll have a lot of say with how this uh, these new climate policies are written. And that is important because the problem with the Labor Party's position on this is they've sort of got a foot in both boats. And, and you can't really do that when it comes to climate change. We're at that point where we've just got to commit. We've got to take some hard actions now. And to do that, you can't go and continue to dig coal out of the ground, but at the same time, run around saying that you know, you're going to fix climate change. It's got to come to an end relatively quickly. So what we need is a, is a transition phase. We need to be helping these people out of those industries into the new economy be it solar, wind, battery storage, you name it. There's plenty of blue-collar jobs that can be made there. And we just need to realize that the the coal-burning 18th and 19th centuries are sort of behind us. I, I said that incorrectly, Lewis. should have been 19th and 20th century. We really weren't burning that much in the 18th. <laughs> <laughs> so positive development, directionally going where we want it to. What What is the Labor Party actually proposing in terms of you know, climate targets. So, I mean, their position is they're, they're going for a 43% reduction on 2005 levels by 2030, which I might point out 2005 was pretty much the peak, depending on what numbers you look at, the peak of Australia's CO2 emissions. So they definitely picked the, um, <laughs> the, the worst year as a starting point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but that's still not enough for us to do our part in Australia to achieve a 1.5% degree uh, warming limit. That needs to be at least 57%. And 43 is unfortunately a fair way from that. But that's the beauty about having such a dominant number of Greens and these teal independents in in the parliament. It enables them to put a little bit of hip and shoulder into the Labor Party and say, well, look, if you want our cooperation on all these other policies that you want to pass, you need to go a little bit harder on those uh, warming targets. Well, you know, in a time where it might feel like there isn't much good news out there, I'm going to take this as a sign of good news on the climate front. And I guess targets aside, from your perspective, what are the the big things as you look at Australia that, that need to change in order for the country to sort of pivot back to being, let's say, on track? Like, yeah. you know, in the US, obviously, we're, we need to massively increase uptake of EVs, but our grid is, is getting more and more clean. What's Australia looking at in terms of the big challenges and getting to where they need to be? Yeah. So the grid is a, is a great one, right? So our CO2 emissions 
per kilowatt hour of electricity generated is still double what they are in the US. So the transition to EVs here actually has less impact. The biggest impact that can be made in Australia right now is decarbonizing the grid, getting off fossil fuels, decommissioning more of these fossil fuel stations and using those interconnect points, you know, these coal-fired power stations, using those interconnect points as battery battery stations for doing this peak demand control. Um, and then, you know, greater investment in wind and solar. So right now, the mechanism that essentially subsidizes the installation of wind and solar in Australia is ramped down and ends in 2030. We need to have a path well beyond that to incentivize people to continue to uptake renewable energy assets. Um, so that that's something that needs to happen straight away so that these industries don't essentially ramp down and die. Um, and at the same time, we need to have a path for retraining those workers that work in these other industries and get them into good paying jobs in the renewable energy industry. I like that, Mills. Todd, I've been dominating the questions. Is this triggering any um, oh, damn right you have. questions on your end? Uh, <laughs> you know, listening, not, not to go back to, to the political side too much, but, you know, listening to you talk about these, these sort of three, three parties that you've mentioned here, it really makes me think of the detriment that we kind of face here in the U.S. with the two-party system we have, where those kind of scenarios aren't really possible for us. You know, like if, if you can imagine here, if there was some third party that could gain four seats in the Senate that would pair really with either party, right? Could pair. But if you think about yeah. it, they could pair with the Democrats. It could have serious implications, right, on the outcomes of of legislation in the United States, but we can't seem to we can't seem to make that happen. And so we just get kind of locked in the stalemate. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, we have technically a Green Party, but it I don't think anybody's been close to winning um, no. any Senate seats. Um, but yeah, I mean that would be a game changer in the US. So Thomas, you mentioned you mentioned grid yeah. and, and moving to renewables, trying to create a, a transition path for these coal workers what what needs to happen in terms of EVs? I mean, I know like in the US we have a federal subsidy. Are there existing subsidies for electric vehicles in Australia? There are a number, but they're, they're typically done at a state level. The federal government has definitely dragged its feet in that regard. They did recently announce some funding for 50,000. This is a former uh, Liberal National Government. 50,000 EV charges um, in people's homes and a number of uh, fast charge installations, but it's peanuts compared to what needs to be done. The Labor Party do have a position of um, wanting to achieve 89% of new vehicle sales by 2030 would be electric vehicles. But I mean, frankly, I, I think that's going to happen anyway by that stage because you pretty much won't be able to buy anything but an electric vehicle by 2030. It's more these interim targets we need to be making a little bit more aggressive. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest driver and what the Greens have been asking for is emission standards to be implemented in Australia, fuel economy standards, so that we don't become the dumping ground of the rest of the world as everybody else transitions to electric vehicles. Right now, we've set ourselves up to be in the position where those facilities left globally that are manufacturing internal combustion vehicles 
they'll get dumped in Australia, as we've already seen. I mean, Volkswagen, for example, apart from the Porsche Taycan, the rest of the Volkswagen group aren't selling any electric vehicles in Australia, and they're being quite open about the reasons for it. Why would we when you have no fuel economy standards? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's something that's very important, and it's something the Labor Party are lacking in right now because they don't have any plans to bring in uh, fuel economy standards in Australia, but the Greens do. And that's the beauty about having this situation in the Senate where they've got to cooperate with the Greens to get anything passed. That's awesome. You're making me feel better about the, the global equation here. We now just, we need the US to fall in line and, and pass some targets. Uh, the other thing I was going to ask you about, Thomas, without knowing the details, I'd read that there's the, the safeguard mechanism that was intended to be put in place to deal with industrial emissions. But I'd read that, you know, it really hasn't been an effective tool because, you know, the targets that they put in place were less than actual emissions. And so long story short, people didn't have to, to dial things in. I'm wondering if you could talk about what needs to happen in terms yeah. of that mechanism to try to help with industrial emissions. Yeah. So the, the, a carbon tax or any sort of levy on carbon in Australia has been the poison pill of many a government for the last 10, 15 years. And so no one's really wanted to touch it. But everybody realizes that the only way to drive um, emissions control in any industry is really putting a price on it. And so this is essentially their mechanism. The Liberal Party was very quick to say this is a carbon tax in disguise. And yeah, it basically is. But it's frankly, not nearly aggressive enough, and it doesn't cover enough range of emitters to, to drive everybody in the right direction. But I, I, I am hoping that as we better educate people about the implications of doing nothing about climate change, that we let the free market do its thing. We put a price on, on emissions and we move in the right direction. We move to a zero carbon society. But it's, it's basically a work in progress right now. They, they, they need to do some fine-tuning for sure. And things like you know, setting those previous emissions targets too high um, does leave loopholes for people to continue to increase their CO2 emissions. Realistically, how fast or what's the timeline that you think Australia could be coal-free? Maybe, maybe there's two questions. How fast could they do it and how fast yeah. do you think will they do it? Yeah, so... I was at a conference about 12 months ago and um, all the major generators were asked at what point do they expect their last coal-fired power station will be coming offline. And the last one was 2050. But as we've found out, n nobody wants to go and fund new coal mines, right? Like if you, if you want to have a, a 30, 40, 50-year life on that asset, but you, you're looking 10 years down the road and you see that, well... Uh, I may not even be able to legally sell this product in 10 years' time. You're not going to put the money into investing in those new mines. So that's basically you know, one of the drivers of this sort of supply-demand mismatch right now that's forced the price up. But I really think that the 2050 thing is going to be a pipe dream. We cannot be emitting CO2 emission from these facilities where it is relatively easy to find a solution. We're not talking about you know, replacing jet fuel or other sort of sources that are very difficult to, to replace at that stage. We're talking about stationary energy generation sources that are we've got the technology for already. So I think that will be massively compressed. And I think that you'll find that by probably 20, 
35, there probably won't be a single coal-fired generator running in Australia anymore. Hmm. That'd be amazing. And we're going to hold you to it, Mills. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. <laughs> Look, you. I mean, you've seen Only- a similar thing, thing in the US, right? Like they've, they've come offline very rapidly. They have, and I expect it'll continue in that trajectory. Yeah. I, I mean, even at this conference last year, um, when coal was relatively cheap, one facility was still losing three cents a kilowatt hour. You can't afford to do that and stay in business. So, and now with the, the I mean, <laughs> some of these companies have been trying to get these stations offline sooner because they were loss making propositions and because they had plans to put in battery peaking stations at the same interconnect point instead. But the Liberal National Government had been bending over backwards to force these companies to keep these facilities online. So I guess as we, as we wrap here, Mills, what, what can we do, you know, thinking of listeners in the US, maybe in Europe, how can we support, you know, Australia in, you know, the Green Party's ambitions to put the country back on the map as a, as a leader on climate? I got to say a bit of friendly competition. I mean, I think we, we, we both need, know where we need to go and we just need to push each other to get there. So if you could step up to the plate and pass some relatively aggressive you know, climate plans and climate legislation, then it would put the pressure on us to do the same. Oh. <laughs> We're about half useless. You get there. I feel that you're so close to the line. We are close to the line. I think it's easy to forget that, that we're just one vote away. And yeah, I agree with you, Thomas. I mean, if we can get something passed in the US, it'll, it'll turn up the heat on the, on the folks down under. Well, I think that's probably a wrap for this week. Uh, exciting news, definitely from Australia. And uh, yeah, Thomas, you definitely left me feeling more hopeful. So come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. 